open your Bibles, please. First John. First John, please. Chapter, chapter two. I I want to dig back in in this book a little bit here. This short epistle. I call it a book. It's really an epistle. Um, and I want to begin to want to share some more things with you. It's it's a powerful epistle. It's, it's just astounding and especially so relevant today because of the, wow, antinomianism, the lawlessness that's found among even church people, uh, the, the sense of easy believism that is prevalent in Christian circles today. That it's just a statement. You make your statement, you confess it, you pay your dues, um, and attend the membership meetings and you're good to go. More to it than that. More to it than that. A whole lot more to it than that. And uh, I challenge you to read this epistle as we will be sharing a few messages from it, talking again about the subject of love and righteousness. Love and righteousness. Stand to your feet. We're going to read from 1 John 2 this morning and just spend a little bit of time there and uh, around this passage. A few other passages. We'll, we'll be going to some other passages. But let me, let me read this as my text here this morning where I will be uh, focusing on verse 4, please. 1 John 2 and verse 4. He that saith... I know him. So here's a confession. You got a live body, a person in front of you. Maybe on the worship, in the worships, uh, the house of worship. Sitting on the pew beside you. And he makes this profession, this claim. He says, I know God. I know Christ. I'm saved. I'm a Christian. He says, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments. That is, he claims, I know Christ. But you look at his life, and he does things that are in direct disobedience to the commandments of Christ. He doesn't keep the commandments of Christ. John is a bit bold. Under the unction and inspiration of the Spirit, he says, he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, that's not hard to understand, is it? Man, you know, I think a third grader can get a hold of that one. He said, but whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we. That we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him. Ought himself also so to walk. Even as he walked. Would you say amen to the reading of God's word. You may be seated here this morning. Just for a little while. I want to dive a little deeper into 1 John. Talking about love and righteousness. Because John puts these two concepts together I think in in such a short book maybe more so than anyone else in the New Testament but these themes are found consistently throughout the book or throughout the New Testament throughout the Old Testament as well love is not merely a New Testament concept or principle it's something God has demanded and commanded and desired from the very beginning. You read the law in Deuteronomy and it was a command that the people of God were to love the Lord thy God with all their heart, their soul, their mind and strength. As a matter of fact, that's where Jesus will get it from when he is asked what is the greatest commandment. He will recite uh, the, the, the verse from Deuteronomy and he will then tell them the second is thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Today it would seem in Christian circles we have divorced the idea of love from righteousness. 
Today, the love that is espoused in Christianity becomes a permissive type of love. It becomes a love that is tolerant of everything. It becomes love without a standard. It becomes love without any sense of, of standard of, of what love should be, what love should look like, what love should endorse. If you love everything with the same degree, I might suggest that you don't have love at all. Uh, and so love has to be defined by its author. It has to be defined by the God that is love. And thereby we understand that this God is righteous. And, and Jesus will declare to us and, that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill that, that standard and to bring it to pass in our lives. The standard was given in the Old Testament, but men simply did not fulfill it. They did not follow it. They did not seek it by faith and accomplish what God wanted to. But Christ came and demonstrated it among us. He lived and loved and believed and became the very example and essence of our faith. He is not only the object of our faith, He is the example of our faith. He is the author of our faith. He is the one that brings to us what it is to live and to love God. And Jesus, quite frankly, was not of such a, a kind of person that everybody agreed with. As a matter of fact, he was quite a controversial person. There are a lot of folks that did not agree with him. They loved his healing. They loved his miracles. They loved the things he could do. They loved the bread and they loved the fishes. They loved the fact that he could open their eyes. They were delighted with the fact that he could heal their withered arms, that he could open up their deaf ears, that he could deliver them from demon possession. He could heal their children. He could raise their children from the dead. That was a delight. But when he utters those words, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And again he said, if any man is going to come after me, he said, and he doesn't hate his mother, his father, his brother, his sister, his wife, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. It's at that moment the crowds begin to disperse. Because Jesus did not come to meet the devil at the negotiation table. He did not come to strike a bargain with sin. He did not come to appease or please the world. He came to do the Father's will. He came to show us that there's a standard of righteousness. And now He who fulfills the law becomes the very standard Himself. John 16 will say, when the Spirit of truth has come, He was going to reprove the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, no more. Of judgment because the Prince of this world is judged. Notice He said the Spirit of God is going to come and convict the world of righteousness. On what basis? On the basis of the law? Not necessarily. He does. will utilize the law. But as the law is fulfilled in Christ... No, he said, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. He had become the living illustration of righteousness. He living among them was the sinless one. He living among them showed them what it was to live the law and to love God with all your heart, to live a life that pleased God, to do God's will and not your own, to honor God and not live for self, to know what it was to love your neighbor Jesus was the very essence of that love. And yes, he raised the dead. And yes, he opened blinded eyes and yes he walked on water and yes he could mesmerize and all the crowds but at the same time he said if you're going to follow me this is the kind of life you got to live if you're going to be my disciple here's how I live and here's how you're going to have to live he did not espouse an easy believism. He did not espouse some kind of life that was frivolous, that was, that was nonchalant, that was careless, that was disobedient, that was lawless. That is not the life and message of Jesus Christ. So he says, he gives to us this news or this standard of righteousness, the law as it's fulfilled in Christ. He becomes the standard. And John is going to espouse that standard. This is the disciple that leaned upon his breast. This is the disciple that loved him. This is the disciple that will stand at his cross. And the Lord looks and says, woman, looks at his mother Mary and says, woman, behold thy son, son, behold thy mother. It is this disciple who will follow him closely. And Jesus, he will be the last living apostle. 
He would die and be the only apostle to die a natural death. And he is going to write to the church and tell them some things in a time of need. Now I want you to watch this. When you read the epistle, you're going to see things that if we can understand what they're facing because of the things that John is having to say to them. When I read this epistle, I believe that you can sense the zeal of John, the righteous indignation of John. This, this idea that within a few decades, maybe within four to five decades, there are people that have already risen within the ranks of Christianity that are espousing a Christianity that is foreign to the original. They are espousing a Christianity that is, that, that is relating or professing this idea that you can have fellowship with God while at the same time living a life of habitual sin. That you can be a Christian and a sinner all in the same word. Now those two must be defined for us. Let them be defined by the book and he will define it in chapter 3. John will define that for us. That's later. But when you read this, there are people that are professing to have arrived at a place in their life where basically they've, they've attained this special knowledge that says that, that they're really that matter is evil and there's nothing you can do with matter but the spirit is saved and that everything is okay there and so the outside really doesn't matter. That what you do in your actions and deeds are just part of the material world. It's a part of your flesh and that part is inherently evil. Nothing you can do about it and we've got this special knowledge that kind of lifts us above that and so we're kind of good on the inside and the outside doesn't matter. That's how we talk about it today. And John, I hear him write and he says, if you got somebody in your midst and they are saying they have fellowship with God, he said, but they're walking in darkness, he said, that man is a liar. Wow, John, that, I mean, I just hear this apostle with the sense that he comes across that he is, he is not concerned about whether or not he hurts someone's feelings. He is concerned because the life of the church is threatened. He is concerned because the holiness and the moral purity of the church is being threatened by some who claim to have special knowledge and are espousing a message that is foreign to the concept and the message that Christ would preach. You got to understand that. That's a that's a powerful thing. And so John is going to write to them and tell them he's not upset with the church in itself, but he is sure upset with those that are claiming to know Christ and are not living as Christ lives. So we dealt with that. And John was going to talk about this. His, his book is such, I'm going to be honest with you, it's a difficult book to outline. It, it just... John is just almost, he, he has the same central theme throughout the epistle, but he just, it's like he hits it from this angle, and then he brings in this point, and then he, he hits on that a little bit, and then it's like he, you can feel him sort of like sometimes Brother Woods may preach. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he just got so much filling his mind and he's, he wants to shut this mess down before it gets any hold on the church and, and he, he's putting his pen to paper, so to speak, and, and, he, and he deals with this and then all of a sudden he interjects this thought and takes off on that a little bit. All of it around the same subject, all of it from the same thing, but he just kind of keeps stabbing at this beast, if you will, and he throws the dagger here and he plunges the sword here and he shoots it with an arrow here until when he gets done. I mean, he doesn't even start this letter as a normal letter. He doesn't say greetings to them. No, sir. He said that which is from the beginning. <laughs> I'm telling you, he, he does. And when he ends the letter, he doesn't say goodbye. He says, little children, keep yourself from idols. He begins with this sense of an authoritative, let's get down to business right here. And when he ends it, he says, tighten up the ship and don't lose it, basically. We serve one God and it's Jesus Christ. We are not idolaters and we are not going to hold hands with the world. And we are not here to compete with it. We're here to convict it. Now, 
This becomes a powerful thing. This is how John begins it and ends it. And all throughout his epistle, it's that way. So it's a little diff, difficult maybe to, to outline, not impossible. But So I, I want to try to take and deal with when he first now mentions this idea of love. He's established that this idea of righteousness in chapter 1, who Christ is. That God doesn't walk in darkness. He doesn't walk in sin. He's light. And he's referring to Jesus Christ. Uh, as well, and he speaks of the Father and the Son, so that the, the idea of the Trinity is espoused in here. And uh, all of those, I, I shared some of that the other uh, Sunday afternoon. And though, so he's got these questions that are coming. I dealt with that Sunday afternoon, and we come to chapter two, and he, he writes to them, saying to them uh, in verse one, My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. John's concerned about that, he doesn't want. Christians to think that they can live in sin and walk with God. Jesus Christ did not come for you to pacify sin, for you to play with sin. He did not come to excuse it. He did not come to overlook it. Yes, he came to forgive it, but he came to deliver from it. Yes, he came to erase the past transgressions, but he came to deal with the heart. He came to deal with the lifestyle that gets involved in sin. And John vehemently is protesting the idea that we can be a people and call ourselves Christians while we live live in habitual sin. So, he begins to espouse this. Verse 3, begin there, watch this. Let's look a little bit at it. Hereby we do know that we know him. He's going to come at this again from so many angles and say it differently, essentially saying the same thing, but, but talk about its different aspects. Hereby we do know that we know him. Talks about knowing him. And he talks about in verse 5, the latter part, hereby know we that we are in him. In verse 6, he that saith he abideth in him. Ought himself to walk. So he talks about knowing him. He talks about uh, abiding in him. And then he talks about walking as he walks. Those are all one and the same for John. They're just different ways of looking at it. In other words, knowing him, it's not possible to know him unless you're in him. And it's not possible to walk like him unless you know him and unless you're in him. So those are not three ways uh, that describe different uh, uh, things that can be done separated from one another. They're just different ways of looking at the same thing. Uh, when you know Jesus, uh, you're in Jesus. Glory to God. And when you're in Jesus, you walk with Jesus. Uh, and when you walk with Jesus, you walk like Jesus. All right, That's what he's saying. Uh, so don't talk to me about knowing him. Uh, don't talk to me about being in him. Uh, don't talk to me about letting him be your dwelling place and walking with him and then you are living a life that's contrary to Jesus Christ. Those two things don't mesh. Amen. He talks about what does it mean to know him? What does it mean to abide in him? And again, there's this idea he talks about first you keep his commandments. Then he talks about you keep his word. Then he talks about you love him. The love of God is perfected. Again, these are not ideas that are espousing different things that are separate from one another. These are ways in which he's espousing and expressing the same relationship or the evidence of this relationship. So that if you're going to make this claim that you know him, if you're going to make this claim that you're in him, if you're going to profess that you are dwelling in him and walking with him, then he said there should be some evidence for that. There should be something that visibly demonstrates that in your life. And he says, number one, you will keep your, his commandments. That's what he said in verse 4. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And then in verse 5, but whoso keepeth his word. And then he talks about, uh, uh, in him verily is the love of God perfected. So you tell me you love God. You tell me this, and you're going to walk like he walks. You're going to 
to keep his word and you're going to keep his commandments. Now, this idea of keep we've espoused many times and defined. It, is, uh, it, does, it carries various ideas with it. It is the idea of obedience. You cannot claim to keep the command of God and not be obeying the command of God. So it is the idea of obedience. It is the idea of treasuring so that, that when you keep something, you place a value upon it, that it is something that is uh, as a treasure and it has value and so you take it under yourself. It's the idea of preserving. It's the idea of protecting. It's the idea of guarding. It's the idea that there is something to you that is precious and has value and so that you are going to take it and you're going to hold it to yourself. You're going to treasure it. You're not going to let somebody take it from you. You're not going to let somebody pervert it. You're not going to let it be spoiled or corrupted. You're not going to treat it as a trifling thing. You're not going to play with it. You're not going to take it out and just throw it around and do what you can with it. You're going to hold it close and dear to you and say, this is the most important thing that I've got a hold of. I treasure the word of Christ. I treasure the commands of Christ. I treasure this walk that I have with him. Now watch this. Just talk about that just for a moment. Now, is that your life today? Because this is where he ties this thing of this righteous standard of his commands, the standard of his word. And he says, if this is who you are and this is what you're doing, then in you the love of God is perfected. If you're claiming to know him, but you live in disobedience, you trifle with his commands, you trash his commands, you're a liar. But if you keep his commands and treasure them and obey them and his word, he said, then in you, the love of God has been perfected. That was the whole standard from Matthew chapter 5. That was the exceeding standard of righteousness. Be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And it's in the context of talking about the Father's love. So the idea is being perfect in love as the Father is perfect in love. This is the standard of perfection. He didn't say in you that, that uh, you know, you're, you're going to make it someday. He said, no, if you have come to this place that you treasure his commands and you treasure his word and you live by them, then thereby the love of God has been perfected in you. Now let's look a little bit at this and then I want to talk about this love. I want to I talk first of all, uh, again, how this love is expressed. It's expressed in keeping uh, the word and keeping the commands of Christ. Let's just talk first of all about his commands just a little bit because sometimes we as Christian people we talk about yeah I obey the commands of Christ can you name a few of them for me well I'm not sure about that I'm not sure if I can name them can you tell me anything about the Sermon on the Mount he spouts several there there's several of his commands that are found there. Can you, can you tell me about things that he said and commands that he has given un, unto his disciples? And that says, now the commands of Christ are not uh, in contradiction to the commands that are espoused in the Old Testament, at least relative to the moral principles that are written upon the heart. He fulfills certain things and ceremonies that are not necessary for us because he is the fulfillment of those things. And in him, he is our Passover. He is my feast of tabernacles. He is my Pentecost. He is uh, the sacrifice and the Lamb of God. He is the one that I worship. He is the Ark of the Covenant under me. He is the altar. He is the priest uh, that offers the sacrifice and he's the sacrifice on the altar. Glory. He is the fire that consumes it. He is the God that's all of that. So yes, that's been fulfilled in him. Not trashed, uh, completed. And now he says, but I want you to know it's Christ's commands he's looking at. That's what I'm concerned about. Well, first of all, if there's a command, there's authority. You can't talk about a command unless you have an authoritative voice. It means if you are obeying and you see that Christ, that you keep his commands, it means that you have endorsed, received, believed, accepted that Christ has the right to place moral obligations on you. That Christ has the right to bind your conscience. 
That Christ has the right to determine the convictions of your heart. That Christ has the right to judge you. That Christ has the right to dictate to you how you should live your life. That Christ has the right to determine your destiny. That Christ has the right to tell you how to run your household. To tell you what to do with your money. To tell you how to, what to do with your, your diet. To tell you how to live your life. That Christ has the right to control everything in your life. When I submit to the commands of Christ, there's one thing that I learn about him. He doesn't come as a guest. He comes as a sovereign. When he comes in your house, he doesn't come there to entertain you. He comes there to govern you. When Christ comes to live in their life, he doesn't come there so he can be just a friend to sit down and have a fireside chat with. He is the sovereign king of glory with supreme authority who is overall and he's the master of everything that we are and do. Show me any house that Jesus went into and he soon, or in that house when he walked in, literally the houses that he went into, he became center of attention and master of the house. You do what he says. That's not a bad thing. He wasn't tyrannical. He wasn't ugly. He wasn't mean in his commands. But it's just a fact of who he is. He's a sovereign. And some folks talk about keeping his commands and they do a few things that the Lord says and, and they, they keep a few things, but they've really never accepted the sovereignty of Christ and that Christ has full sway and power over their lives and power to bind our consciences. We read it from Sister Mazel's testimony yesterday and that was right. She had it right. She said in her testimony, Christ is everything to me. Christ is everything to me. Oh, glory. In other words, I want to know if my house pleases him. I want my life to please him. I want my language to please him. I want my speech to please him. I want my thoughts to please him. I want the meditation of my heart to please him. I want everything, my spirit, my attitude, my appearance. I want it to be that which is under his dominion and which is pleasing unto him. You see... You can't have him command a portion of your life. He comes in as full commander or no commander at all. So this idea of keeping his commandments is the idea that first you've accepted his authority to bind your conscience. We can look at his commandments. I'm not going to go. Read the gospels. They're there. You can read the gospel of Matthew. He tells you how to pray. He tells you how to fast. He tells you how to give, not to let your left hand know what the right hand is doing. He goes through and talks about uh, how that you are to reconcile with your brother. He talks about how you deal with your relationships with one another. If you have a brother that's offended, it's Christ. Not the law, it's Christ. He goes far beyond the law and gives us a standard that is far deeper. I mean, Christ will tell you what to do when you're on the outs with the brother. He'll tell you how to go to him. He'll tell you, if that don't work, you get another brother and go to him. If that don't work, you take him before the church and let the church decide the matter. And if he doesn't hear the church, you cast him out. It's Christ that gives that unto us. These are his commands that are given unto us. It's Christ who says, go ye into all the world oh, and preach the gospel to every creature. It's Christ who says teaching all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. These are His commandments. It's Christ who says, love one another as I have loved you. It's Christ who says, tarry in Jerusalem till you be endued with power from on high. It's Christ who says, receive ye the Holy Spirit. It's Christ who gives, see that's a command of the Lord. The Lord commands us to receive the Holy Ghost. The Lord doesn't suggest it to us. The Lord doesn't say it'd be nice if I could baptize you. This is one of his commands. If you treasure that as a command of Christ, you'll yield yourself to that and say, Lord, fill me with the Spirit. Fill me with the Holy Ghost. Christ has become today a goody two-shoes. He's become a buddy-buddy. He's become a, 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 a cool dude. He's become a hip-hop. He's become like another Hollywood star. And we treat him as such. We place him among the idols. We place him among the gods. That's not Christianity. Christianity is not placing Christ among the gods. Christianity is trashing the gods and obeying Christ. Christianity is getting rid of this world's images and gods 
and surrendering everything to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I could go through. He tells us to love our neighbors, ourselves. All of this. These are the commands of Jesus Christ. How much impact do the commands of Christ make upon your life? Do you think about pleasing Him? If you're on the outs with a brother, do you consider what Christ says about how you should do about that relationship? If you're not filled with the Spirit, do you consider what Christ says about that? When you pray, when you fast, when you give your tithes and your offerings, when you help somebody in need, do you consider what Christ has said about that? Do you consider what he values when he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood? Do you consider and think about yourself that you are living the way he wanted you to live? When's the last time, you know, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, deny yourself, take up the cross and follow me. When's the last time you ever thought about the application of the cross to your life? Taking up the cross is not a suggestion. It's a command. Moses didn't command him to take up a cross. Jesus did. John doesn't talk about the commands of Moses. They're going to be involved in the commands of Christ because he's going to go beyond the law. He talks about the commands of Christ. Moses didn't tell you to deny yourself and follow him. Jesus did. Moses didn't tell you, forsake all you've got and follow me. Jesus did. Jesus commanded this kind of love and devotion and loyalty that others are not going to do. And I'm asking you, if the love of God is perfected in you and you are a true blue Christian, then the commandments of Christ cannot be a trifling to you. They are not just Sunday school material. They are not just something you listen to when Brother Woods talks about it. There's something that weighs heavily upon your life and your spirit and you treasure that. Jesus said, take up the cross. Are you consciously doing that? Is there any sense in your life that you think about what the cross means to you do you ever sacrifice anything or is your Christianity a matter of convenience is your Christianity a matter of simply what is pleasing to you or is it something that has caused you to lay down your very life for its purposes and for its goals I'm talking about keeping what it means to have the love of God perfected in you. It means you keep His commandments. And, and for most of us, all we think about, when we think about, I keep the Ten Commandments, I'm good. There's far more than that. Again, I'm not talking about Moses. I'm talking about Jesus. Oh, yes. I'm talking about the one that you're baptized to. I'm talking about the one whose authority that I live under. I'm talking about the one who tells you to love your wife as Christ himself loves the church. I'm talking about the one who is here to direct everything about us. He owns you. He bought you. How about keeping his word? His commandments you can find in the gospel. Go through. Just find what he says to do. See the things that he tells you how to live your life. And that's what we do. But then he goes further and says keeping his word. This is logos. He keeps the logos. Christ himself is the logos. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God. John 1 and 1. The word became flesh. That logos, that, that, that entire sense or revelation or expression of deity God as he has expressed himself and as he can express and does express himself has now been made visible among us that which was invisible became visible that which is eternal came and took on something that was bound by time that which was unlimited come and expresses itself in a limited format I'm telling you but it put it in a format that you and I can look at it puts it in a format that you and I can see it puts it in a format that you and I can touch and that's what John said I'm not going to talk to you about an invisible God I'm not going to talk to you about this God up there and you just kind of discern what he is I'm talking about one who lived among us the word of life has been made manifest among us our eyes have seen, our ears have heard we have looked upon, our hands have handled of the word of life God was manifest among us 
I'm not talking to you about an apparition. I'm not talking to you about a ghost. Uh, he said, I'm talking about one that became flesh uh, and became blood like you and I. I'm talking about one you can touch because some of them believed this. They thought, well, Jesus, it really wasn't God in the flesh. It was just an apparition. It was just a, 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 a spirit, if you will. And God never really became a man uh, because, you see, that would kill their theory. Their theory is, is that flesh is evil. The theory is, is that material world is wicked and there's nothing can be done about it. But you got a major problem if the Creator God comes and takes upon him the material world. That he becomes flesh. You got a problem, buddy, because his life wasn't evil. His life was sinless. His life was good. His life was righteous. And that's a direct contradiction. And John said, I don't want to hear this business about that uh, you think he's just basically a spirit. And that, that idea that he never really became flesh. That's why he says, whoever doesn't confess that Christ came in the flesh is an antichrist. How would you like that? I mean, how would you like to be sitting in here in this letter on a Sunday morning and you've been one of those fellows that's espoused that idea. Oh, he was just an apparition. He really didn't become flesh. God really didn't become touchable. He really didn't become tangible. And all of a sudden, he, John says, you're not a Christian, you're an antichrist. Right. That would smart. That would sting. But you see, this strikes at the heart of the gospel. Because when God came, became flesh and dwelt among us, he didn't just live any old way. I know I've said this a lot of times, but you've you got to remember this. Think with me just for a moment. Let's just take everything that you know about God. Forget the hum, hum, humanity for a moment. Just think about deity. Tell me something about God, young man, that you know. What is he like? Anything. He's perfect. Thank you. Tell me something about God, sir. He's righteous. Tell me something about God. He is love. Tell me something about God. Woo! Did you hear that? Tell me something about God. He is awesome. He knows everything. He is omnipresent. He is perfect holiness. He is immense. He is... Without limits, he is infinite. He has no boundaries. He doesn't occupy space. He can interact with it in that sense. But space and God cannot be in the same terms. You and I occupy space and we're bound by it. God is not bound by space. You can't put him in a box. You cannot put some limits on him. There are no restrictions on God. There is nothing that ever limits his liberty or limits his ability or his knowledge. He has complete freedom of will. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Now, he never acts, he never acts in, contra, in contradiction to his person. He always does what is consistent with his character. So God's not going to murder. God's going to do all just. If he, if he executes somebody, it's a just execution. It's not a murder. It's a just execution of a guilty person not a murder of an innocent life. All of this that God is, just take those things that you know about God. He is so high. He's above everything. He dwells in light that no man can approach to. On and on we can talk about it. The Bible said he inhabits eternity. He sits in the high and the holy place. The seraphim cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The cherubim are, are his wheels bearing his throne. And he goes straight forward. There's no shadow. Everywhere he goes, he's always turning forward. And in reality, there's, that's only the sense of the vision given to us. God God doesn't have to move. The psalmist said, if I take the wings of the morning and go to the uttermost parts of the earth, he is there. He said, if I make my bed in hell, he is there. He said, if I say the darkness will hide me, even the night shall be light around me. I'm telling you, he said, where can I go from his presence? Whither shall I flee? Just give me a few moments. Think with me just for a moment. All that you know about God and His goodness, His perfection, His moral rectitude. All of that. That to you is really untouchable. To me is unknowable. To me, he, he, I mean He is spirit. This divine being that exists apart from everything. He depends on nothing. He has no crutch. 
He needs nothing outside of his being. Now all of a sudden, you take that divine person and he takes on the material world and becomes flesh. The infinite, the eternal, the omniscient, the omnipotent, the omnipresent, the perfect, the imminent. All of that, the holy, the righteous, the just one. Now God, let's understand something. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't back up. He doesn't ever have to say, oops. Missed that one. Let me do that better. He doesn't learn. He never needs a counselor. He has never had to apologize to anybody. That's not arrogance. That's called perfection. It's called righteousness. Everything he does is perfect. No marks against his name. And he comes down. Forgive me for lack of a better way to express it in my my inability, but to put it in human terms, is there a risk involved here? This track record that is unmarked. Check the track record of every human being. Check the track record of every man and woman that's lived upon this earth. Somewhere there'll be a stain. Somewhere there's a blemish. Somewhere there's a mark on the name. Somewhere there's a failure. Oh, there's been men that have lived lives that, that you and I look at and think, wow, what a glorious man. Job is called a perfect and upright man. And yet you'll find in the limitation of his knowledge, his spirit will complain. You'll find a frailty. You'll find a weakness. You'll find somewhere where there's a limitation. And it brings to the man a sense of his own ineptness and his own corruption. And God takes on that flesh. That's risky business now, God. You're going to come down and take on something where no one's ever succeeded. You're going to live in a form where at some point or another, everyone that's ever lived in that form, the devil has been able to pull one over on them. You are going to get and take on that form. I don't know about you, but the first thing I want to say is... Apart from that idea of this for a moment. But God comes down and becomes a man. What does God do as a man? Now understand this. He can't deny himself. He cannot change his heart. God is going to come. He's going to take on this form. Great is the mystery of godliness. The incarnation is a wonder that, that is impossible to grasp the depth and the beauty and the wonder of it. I understand that. Just, just stab at it for a few moments. But I, I want you to understand that God is taking on this form of flesh and in all His holiness and all of His purity. Does He do anything? Now we're going to watch Him. You see, when He sits in the heavens, I can't watch Him. When He's up there, I take Him at His word. I know He's perfect. My inner sense tells me that He's perfect and that He's pure. How can I ever serve a God the was anything else. How could I ever think that a God that was impure created the world that's around me? How could I ever live if a God had such power and yet there was some stain or mark or blemish on him? It would be magnified a million times over. Because if God had any sin in him, it would be infinite sin and the world has never seen infinite sin. Because whatever God is, he is infinitely he has infinite love. He's infinite patience. He's infinite peace. He's infinite joy. He's infinite strength. He's infinite power. He's infinite knowledge. Whatever God is, He is infinitely. He knows nothing by boundaries. He knows nothing in my limitations or, or anything like that. And I'm just one to stand and stare a little bit. I want to gaze upon Him like John said. Because when that kind of God puts on a flesh and now I can observe Him. Where I could not see Him, now I can. Where I cannot question His character, now I can. Where I cannot utter 
a word in the presence of the seraphim who say, holy, holy, I cover my eyes, I cover my mouth, and I say, I'm a man of unclean lips. Oh, God, have mercy upon my soul. But when he becomes a man, now he's at arm's length. Now I can listen to his words. Now I can watch his actions. Now I can look for his motives. Now I can watch how he treats people. Shall I find a stain? Shall I find a mark? Oh, the wonders of wonders. God took on flesh and he lived it right. He lived it holy. He lived it pure. And he succeeded as God would want him to succeed. John will destroy their theology of this business that you can fellowship with God and live in darkness because he says that God you talk about you have fellowship with was manifest among us and when he walked among us he is a light I'm going to tell you I've been with him I've slept beside him I've eaten beside him I've heard him preach I've seen him in tough times I've seen him in easy times I've seen him and been with him when he can relax on the hillside I've been in the storm with him I've been in the fire with him I've been with him when Herod's on his heels I've been with him when the Pharisees are trying to catch him up I've been with him when they're trying to trip him up I've been with him when the devils have come to surround him I've been with him in every difficult time and I can tell you not once did he mess it up not once did he go wrong not once did he goof not once did he go astray I'm telling you in him is no sin he is light and there's no darkness in him I never saw an ill motive. I never saw a thought that contradicted God. I never saw an action that went contrary to who God is. I never heard a word that God would condemn. I never saw a look. I never saw a glance that was inconsistent with the revealed word of God that is written down for us. I never saw anything in the life of Jesus that would ever hint that this material world has to always be relegated to the wicked and the evil. See, John didn't look at Jesus and just say, well, that's Jesus. That's how he lived. We can't do that. John looked at Jesus and said, God became flesh. I can walk with him. And he said, if you're walking with him, the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse you. From all sin. He said if you confess the sin. He'll forgive it. He'll cleanse you not just from what you confess. He'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He must do that. Woo glory. John said I'm telling you. In him is no sin. He will tell us it is the, the, the children of the devil. They're the ones. He that committeth sin is of the devil, John says. But he said, whoever is born of God doeth righteousness. Woo, glory. Oh, my. This is a powerful testimony. And he gives, and I think that somewhere when we look at the testimony of Jesus, we have taken it and lifted it above the normal, lifted it outside of the realm of human experience. And we have just said, that's him, that's God. John didn't do that. John said he became one of us so we can become what he wants us to be. He lived this life of glory and this life of victory so that he can transfer that to us so that he can give us power so that we might become sons of God so that we might be in the fellowship of Jesus Christ. He said our fellowship is with him. Oh, glory. His word, his commandments deal with specific commands that are written. But his word involves the entire accomplishment of his life. The Logos. All that could be made visible, at least in that time frame. All that could be expressed in humanity. And made visible to humanity of the divine being was done when Christ was on this earth. Do you understand that? Do you see that this powerful God became subject to criticism, to speculation, to judgment, to observation, to nitpicking? 
the skepticism. And he came through with flying cars. And the hope is, is that if I'm in him, and I know him, and I love him, and I treasure his commands, and I treasure his word, his life, his entire message, his entire ministry, his entire being. In other words, if the person of Christ himself becomes a treasure and something to be possessed, something to be touched, something to be laid hold of, something to be observed, something to be meditated on, something to be imitated, something to be written into my heart and in my life so that as I behold his glory, I am transformed into the same image from glory unto glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3 when he said we all with open face behold we all I like that with open face there are only a few folks who have seen Jesus and was on this earth but now Paul comes along and says we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord I cannot see him with my physical eye but through the spirit and by the word of God he can illuminate my man my mind and my spirit can be illuminated and I can see see the glory of Christ and he can transform me as I look at him as I keep him as I treasure him as I love him he will take that and change me into that image give yourself to gaze upon anything long enough and it will soon impact your life Love and righteousness. What I've expressed to you this morning is this. If you keep his commands and you keep his word, that is his entire life and being, the very expression that he brought to us. If you treasure that, if you yield to it, if you submit to it, if you honor it, if you obey it, without question, without debate, without argument, without looking for a way to get around it. He doesn't say righteousness is perfected in you. He says love's perfected in you. He doesn't say you become omniscient or that you become perfect in knowledge as God is perfect in knowledge. No. He said what you've done is you've now found God's heart. Hallelujah. And you now will love as he loves. You will love what he loves. You will love why he loves. And you will love the way that he loves. Oh, glory. And so that you and I, if this love is perfected in us, it is evidenced, it is evidenced by our attitude towards Christ and what Christ commands. And if Christ and your claim to know him has made no change and impact on your character. It doesn't affect your action, your words, your attitudes, or your appearances. I didn't. John said you're a liar. Because John said to know him is to love him. 